Welcome to Killer Kush, a podcast where we smoke and talk about killers, calf spurs, and cryptids. My name's Licknamok. My pronouns are he, him. And my name's Lady Cocktonberg. My pronouns are they, she. My name is Billinese Puss. Puss? Puss. Puss. <laughs> well, all <I'm>, right. My <laughs> pronouns are she, her. <laughs> Welcome to episode four. The Dyatlov Pass. Everybody welcome Philanese to, to the room. Philanese poise. Philanese poise. Uh, well, cool. What's your vibe today, Nick? My vibe is we have a party to go to tonight. Yeah. All three of us. Yeah, we do. And I have social anxiety. 7 p.m. rager. 7 p.m. rager. Honestly responsible. Yeah. Drink responsibly, kids. At Very 7 p.m. Yeah. At 7pm. Bro, your dog is fucking my toes up right now. Mm. Why? Every podcast we mention toes. Yeah. Every single content This is for you, Dan Schneider. (laughs) If you're out there, sponsor us. Oh, Dan. (laughs) Philanese? What's up with you, my dude? I need to say, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. And? Well, yeah, I'm going to this party with y'all. I'm excited. Casey throws a good party. He's a good host. He's a really good host. He is yeah. a really great host. His New Year's party? Lit. One of the last memories before COVID. Went <laughs> off. Went off. Such a tentative host. I'm going to take some shots. He'll, he'll offer them to you. Yeah, Guaranteed. I know. You'll walk in and you'll get handed a shot when you walk through the door. Casey, yeah. great host. And I haven't seen him in so long. We, none of us. Well, I don't know. I don't know I've when y'all have seen him. Have you oh, seen him? Have you seen him? <laughs> I, I mean, like, Snapchat. Like, oh, yeah. We, well, used, we have a streak. That's not so yeah. seeing every, him. Like, but we, I like, text talk, him. talk. Yeah. He like asked me plant things. questions a lot. Plant daddy. My plants are dying. Well, no, not my all of them. It's just dying. one. <laughs> one what of all plants. Oh. <laughs> that is me to my plant. Not watering <laughs> it for a week. Like. Well, yeah. Yeah. My vibe is I've got a foot cramp. Which is probably Back from to feet. dehydration. <laughs> Back oh, to oh, fucking feet. I meant lower leg area. <laughs> Cramp. <laughs> did you ever do the playwright aloud or whatever? Oh yeah, yeah. The, my I did it last semester, and the whole thing had to do with feet. Oh my god! Like. themed playwright. <laughs> okay. Wait, that's like a Columbia sponsored event, right? Yeah. yeah. Columbia be like in feet. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Doctor Kim be like. Oh, get me your toes. Slurping <laughs> on them toes. Fifty thousand dollars a year, so we can slurp on your toes. So I played a, like my play was I was a photographer that was like trying to get girls to a like. Foot. Photographer? You were a photographer. Yeah. Oh. That was like a crazy, like artistic. I said, "Oh, this is Columbia. This is totally Honestly, Columbia." Though, did you actually take pictures of feet? No, the stage manager collected them for us. Beautiful. Wait, 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 wait. Picture having to go on your personal computer because being a stage manager is your job for the show, and having to search foot pictures. <laughs> Professional. <laughs> Professional putting together pictures. a slideshow. Do, do you think if pictures. we say foot or feet enough in our show that Google will start to recognize that when people search feet, our show will pop up? Yes. So yes. Crazy. Feet, feet, foot, foot, feet, feet. <laughs> <laughs> Google. Oh, our, our sound this week. It was given to us by Allison, whose pronouns are she, her. Yeah. So shout out to Allison. Thank you, Allison. Thank I you. appreciate it. Allison, you are our number one fan. Yeah, shout out um, to you, homie. So thank you. Anyway, everybody, I think you know what time it is. Uh, we'll see you in a second.
Ivan. Oh, um, before before this actually, it's Elio's birthday. Yeah. My Woo! dog is two today. My my baby is two. So cute. I still remember when you pulled into the Lakeshore parking lot <laughs> with him in the passenger. He was so tiny. He was the fluffiest little guy. Yeah, if you are curious about my dogs, follow them on Instagram at uh, <laughs> the Porky Boys. That's the Porky P O R K I E boys oh <laughs> <laughs> anyways moving forward do either of you know about the dyatlov pass yeah we have one yes we have one no well i had to know well about yeah it, did I you know about it before you did the research i did i did but i don't know like i knew what it was and i knew that like you know a bunch of hikers just got <laughs> or whatever yeah. but i didn't know much more beyond that okay yeah 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 I I really like this story. It feels like the realistic Russian sleep experiment. You yeah. know, like it's weird yeah. and twisted and confusing and scary. And I really like it because of that. Yeah. Also, we didn't talk about what today marks. Today's conspiracy day. Conspiracy day! Conspiracy day! Woo! Uh, that's why we have Philanise on the show. Philanise is going to be here to make some commentary, listen to the different conspiracies that we lay out, and choose whichever one she likes the most. Normally, if mine and Katie's boyfriends weren't such losers... And silly heads. And silly, silly doo-doo goofy, heads. Doo-doo poopy pantses. Um, <laughs> they, they would be here talking about their own sides of the conspiracy, but instead we pulled Philanise in last moment and said, hey, will you listen to us talk about this weird russian thing and make comments <laughs> and just yeah comment yeah, along with us commentary so thank you philanese thank you always always, always. Yeah. <laughs> one more round of applause give, give a round of applause all righty so first and foremost i want to make sure that i give a shout out to museumcenter.org newyorker.com national geographic different podcasts like sinisterhood mile higher and that's why we drink and a whole bunch of other sources that i found a lot of the stuff the new yorker so sold it in a very painted way Hmm. And it was very interesting. Yeah. Because I normally come at it from a very chronological... So it was very nice to read something that was flourished. Yeah. When was it written, may I ask? I don't know. Yeah. I... <laughs> I wonder if any news places in the United States covered it when it happened. Because it was in 1959. So that was like the Soviet Union going strong. Yeah. America was like, fuck Russia big time, baby. Yeah. So... Yeah, maybe. But also, I think it was, like, mountainous Russia. Yeah, and then it just became a conspiracy thing. And that's when it started blowing up, is when it became a conspiracy thing. Yeah. Well, anyway. Alrighty, so we start the story with Igor Dyatlov. He was born in 1936, and I'm also, I'm gonna mispronounce a whole bunch of these last names, yeah. all of these Russian cities. It's rough. It'd be like that sometimes. Sit with me as <laughs> I sounded out as I was taught in first grade. Use a lord. <laughs> in Sverdlovsky, Soviet Union, what is now Yekaterinburg, Russia. As a young boy, he spent almost all of his time in nature, and when he wasn't exploring, he was known to be an inventor, and tinkered about, always messing with the family stuff, trying to make it better. It was clear that this young boy had a great life of knowledge and exploration ahead of him. At the age of 21, in 1957, he constructed a telescope for him and his friends to see the Sputnik launch from the Soviet Union. With encouragement from his friends and family, he attended Ural Polytech Institute, or UPI, as I call it throughout the story, 
as an engineering student, with UPI being one of the leading institutions in nuclear power, military engineering, and communications engineering. While at UPI, he maintained his love for the outdoors and planned, uh, Unplanned man excavation. Can we talk about, hold on. Unplanned man excavation. It's meant to say many excavations, or exhibitions, but it says man exhibitions. Man excavations. (laughs) (laughs) You planned many man excavations. Anyway, planned many exhibitions where he tested new tools and gear that he made changes or improvements to using his knowledge from the institution. Man excavations Uh, just makes that following. (laughs) Uh, He tested new tools. He's just really smart and loves the outdoors. Yeah, and and he's he's creating a lot of tools, right? For experimenting in the outdoors. That's cool. Exactly. He's like combining his loves of invention and making things better and engineering and figuring out the science. Do you think that he'd be a nerd and a loser and someone you wouldn't want to hang out with? Or do you think that you'd be friends with him? (laughs) I'd be so sexy. Well, I wonder if he'd be like pretentious. You know? I hope not. I don't know. His name's Igor. Okay. Would you be friends with him, do you think? It would That's... be through a mutual. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when he said I would not be directly his friend. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be his friend. I think that we'd hang out sometimes, maybe, in the same group of people, but I wouldn't be his friend. Yeah. So. But if he was cute, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He is, he is actually very cute. He is very cute. In the end of 1958, Dyatlov plans a 16-day exhibition, cross-country style, through the Ural Mountains, which divides Europe and Asia. To do this, he had to get it approved through UPI Sports Club, which was excited to back such an adventurous expedition, but was given the mandate that he must recruit other students and graduates to assist on this treacherous hike. The main reason the UPI demanded that he bring a group of people is due to the path of the hike. Dyatlov's map takes the exhibition directly through the Mansi territory of the mountains. The Mansi people are an indigenous group that maintain a semi-traditional way of life. The mountaineers at the time feared these people, but knew that if they stayed out of their way, that all would be okay. The issue with this is that this was a specific trail that would take them 200 miles into territory that was, as far as anyone knew, hadn't been institutionally explored before. This area of the mountain was not extremely rugged and a hard hike, but it did have extremely cold temperatures, deep snow, and high winds. <coughs> Cough, bitch. And tea. Yeah, so basically there was an indigenous group of people that lived on the mountain that the Russian people hadn't really messed yeah. with. They were like, they live there, that's fine. Anytime they would be hiking, they would just make sure they stayed out of what yeah. they like zoned as their territory. And he planned this trip directly through it. And so everybody that that was in the sports club that had to give the approval Said, for listen the bro you can do this but you're gonna need some you just more need guys. like a group of people yeah. yeah just to make sure that everything's safe it's yeah. not like it's not a very mountainous hike but it's very yeah. desolate like there's not anything there the temperatures are extremely cold it's a really hard like and the winds were high were That's so important. high <laughs> the entire story yeah the winds yeah. were going yeah Dyatlov recruited eight of the best Soviet had to offer. The people he recruited all had experience in the mountains as winter campers, cross-country skiers, and etc. He trusted that with this group, the exhibition would run smoothly. The nine people invited were Yuri, this is where we are in this moment, Krivonishinko, Rustam (laughs) Slobodin, Alexander Kolevatov, Semyon Zolotarov, Yuri Doroshenko, Zaneda Komakarova, Nikolai Thubo, Brignoli, <laughs> Yuri Yudin, and. So there's literally.
<laughs> Literally the Weasleys. Yeah, three Yuri's got invited. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That That's must so have been funny. such a popular name. Yeah, I guess so. It's time. a really cute name. It's, yeah. I like that name. I just, can we round of applause machine for me? Because I deserve it after that very intense <laughs> pronunciation. The rest of the time, I only call them by their first names. Uh, That's confusing with the Yuri's. With the Yuri's. But so <laughs> one I of say the Yuri's. one of the Yuri's multiple yeah. time or both of the Yuri's. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. To give a brief background on how experienced and badass these people were. On a previous hike together, Ludmila was shot by a hunter by accident. She then hiked 50 miles back to civilization and the rest of the group said she did so cheerfully and didn't let the arrow distract her from enjoying the exhibition. You're fucking, she said, Ludmila was like, girl boss. Oh, we didn't ask. Girl boss, gatekeep, gaslight. What are you feeling today? Uh, gatekeep. Did I say that last week? We both said girl boss last week, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Gatekeep this week? I'm never feeling gaslight. <laughs> <laughs> Philanese? Um, girl boss. Girl boss. Cool. I'm feeling gaslighty. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, this bitch got shot with an arrow and literally walked back 50 miles to civilization with an arrow in her. And everybody was like, she didn't complain. Good for her. She was just happy to be there. Damn. Just bonkers. So the crew leaves by train on January 23rd. That's my birthday, everybody. Everybody say oh happy, birthday, happy birthday, Nick, birthday. in 1959. Um, <laughs> to get to the departure landing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it is said that in the travels, they hid under sheets to avoid paying train tolls, and one of the Yuri's got in trouble by the police at a train station for playing his mandolin and pretending to panhandle for money. There are very detailed diary entries for this entire story at dlfpass.com, but I'm not going to get into all the detail because we would be here for a really long time, and, like... They keep a journal throughout the entire trip. Yeah, yeah. They talk about well, all the very funny. Too. The journals are a very ethnographic view. <laughs> of, <laughs> the journals are a very ethnographic view of like what they were experiencing though. Yeah. Because they talked about these funny moments that they had in yeah. the diary. Where if it was just a scientific point of view, it'd be like, we, we traveled from this point to this point today at these longitudes. Yeah. Where they were like, today Yuri's dumbass panhandles got in trouble by the fucking police. That's like, funny. Yeah. And just talking about their shenanigans. Because they were so young. They, they were our age, yeah. you know? Yeah. And they were going on like a backpacking trip together. Yeah, that's so fun. Yeah. Oh. They're just goofy young people, and everyone had really high hopes the whole time, so they were just really happy. Yeah. After two days of travel by train, they reached the Ivdel that was previously a prison camp during Stalin's reign. They then travel another day in the back of a lumber truck, then by a horse-drawn sleigh to a logging camp called Second Northern. This is when Yuri Yudin had a flare-up of sciatica and had to return back as he would not be able to withstand the trip. January 28th, 1959 would be the last time Yuri Yudin would ever see his nine other friends again. Can we talk about how him having a bad back, a bad sciatic nerve... Saved his life. Saved his life. Yeah. Sometimes you shouldn't go to the party. <laughs> That's the lesson sometimes I take you from shouldn't that. Go, sometimes having your back blown out can be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess most times it's a good thing. Uh, the group was supposed to have made it to a small town at the end of the track by February 12th, and then contact the UPI Sports Club to let them know that everything went as planned. When the call never came, UPI assumed that they had been held up due to a heavy storm that happened during the trip in the mountains. After several days, many disgruntled calls came from parents and loved ones. The local Bureau of Communist Party and UPI launched a search party on February 20th. 
People from the school, government, nearby towns, even hunters from the Mansi people aided in the search. Oh. Yeah, so these... Because the Mansi people lived a semi-traditional life, so they still had some contact with yeah. the Russians. They just purposely lived separately. Yeah. When they heard that somebody got lost on their terrain, they immediately, all of their hunters went out with their dogs and started searching yeah. the whole time. Which is kind of sweet. Which is like, so sweet. Yeah, yeah they, they were still like, we are separate, but your people... Your people. Are yeah. hurt on our lands. Let us help you. Yeah. Which is very nice. Yeah. It wasn't until February 25th that anything was found. They first found a ski, and the next day, the tents in an area that the Mansi called Kolat Sikul, the Dead Mountain. Bom, bom, bom. Yeah, five days. They were found days, on Dead Mountain. Five days into the search, nothing was found. They then find a ski, and then a day after that, they find a tent uh, at an area that they're, they called the Dead Mountain, which is just bonkers. Yeah. Dead Mountain? Girl, why are you going of there? Of course they were found on Dead Mountain. Stay oh, out. Okay. Yeah. Stay what? out, gatekeeping the mountain. No. Stay. <laughs> Dead Mountain feels gatekeepy today. <laughs> the tent was buried under snow, and once they were able to retrieve it, they found many slashes through the tent. Although everything inside the tent was unbothered, all of the clothes and gear and food were virtually untouched. About 100 feet down the mountain... Very distinct footprints were found that show about eight people walking, not running, towards the tree lines. All the footprints were either stocking prints, bare footprints, and one of the tracks showed someone with only one boot on. These prints moved downhill for about 700 yards and then vanished into the trees. Each member of the search party testified. Some of the prints indicated that the person was either barefoot or in socks because you could see the toes. <laughs> toes again. <laughs> no, take foot, a shot foot, every feet, time feet, you feet, hear foot, toes. Foot, foot, foot. <laughs> <laughs> These very experienced people yeah. that had... Were cross-country skiers and scientists and people had been on excavation. Yeah, and so there's parts of this that, due to our podcast being as short as we want it to be, I have to leave out. But Russia at that time had a program that if they were hiking, they could get, like, experience points, basically, and they could, like, Ooh. level up in the system. And so most of them were at the hiking level that this trail was recommended for, and a few of them weren't. But most of them were, and some of them were above this hiking trail. So it should have been an easy hike. Yeah. Uh, with the point system that they had. Yeah. Due to their past experience. So them going on this hike, they know everything that they need to know. They know more Ooh. than they need to know to be able to do this, you know? Yeah. So why are they out Why are they running barefoot in, the, in snow? the snow during these cold winds? Yeah. Why when a storm is moving in. And their tent cut, uh, all cut up. Yeah, why exactly. Is, yeah, why are... The next morning, the two Yuri's <laughs> on the trip... Why can we see their toes? Sorry. No. Why, yeah, their toes in the, in the <laughs> snow. That's also just sad, you know, Mad to know that somebody world. had to experience that. Yeah, t that someone had to put their toes in the snow. No, like, they were running, <laughs> they were so scared that they were, like, running. they, yeah, they didn't listen to any of their other training or instincts. Like, they just ran. ran. In that moment, their only thought of survival was running. Yeah. And that's scary to me. Yeah. That's scary to me. The next morning, the two Yuris on the trip were found under a tree at the end of the forest. They were laying next to a burnt-out fire, only wearing their underwear. Nearby, freshly broken branches led searchers to discover a tree that had torn cloth chunks and pieces of flesh on it. The day after the Yuris, Ick is yeah, right. Ick is so the right. Torn skin and chunks. Ew. Yeah. When I heard that, I was like, damn, that's scary. But I, I figure if you are running in pitch black, assuming oh, yeah, this happened at night too. and you don't know where you're going oh, and you're God. sprinting oh, for shit. your life. You would totally, yeah. Well, you if would... you just run into a tree, you're going to run into it hard enough that you're going to scrape yourself. Yeah. yeah. You know? And depending on yeah. if that tree had a branch on it, what it had, 
Like, yeah. they kind of make sense. And then they were found nearby, so maybe they got just enough into the woods that they felt safe and they built a fire. They probably thought they were going to be okay, but they didn't have any clothes. Yeah. Their bodies were in shock because of the trauma that they probably were going through. Yeah. So they built a fire because their knowledge instinct said, we need to get we warm. We need to get warm, yeah. The day after the Yuri's found, they found bodies of Igor Dyatlov and Zineda. Their bodies looked as if they were going back towards the tents. Their hands were clenched in fists when they were found. So they were climbing back towards the tents. So I think that they got away and then they were like, their only idea for survival was getting back to shelter. Yeah. Or also to grab clothes. To grab clothes, to grab any of their supplies, all of their resources, exactly. While the search for others continued, the four bodies autopsied for clues as to what could have happened. The medical examiner was in awe of what these bodies had experienced. The New Yorker states the medical examiner found that... Shed no cold. (laughs) Had blackened fingers and third-degree burns on a shin and a foot. Inside his mouth was a chunk of flesh that he had bitten off his right hand. Doroshenko's body had burned hair on one side of the head and a charred sock. All the bodies were covered with bruises, abrasions, scratches, and cuts. So I just think it's very important to know that- He bit off a part of his own fucking hand. So that's both of the Yuris, is who those people are. So both of the Yuris had third degree burns and literally bit off. And their clothes were burnt, too. What what clothes they had on were burnt. Weird. Which is very interesting. But they also had were right s- by the fire. Maybe they yeah. passed out and fell into the fire. Maybe, yeah. you but know. But why was a chunk bitten out of his hand? Exactly. Ew. In his own mouth. Yeah. A few days later, they find the body of Rustam Slobodin in a similar position as Dietlov and Zineda. He had only one boot on, and an autopsy showed that he had a fractured skull. Rustam was the one that was running with only one shoe. Okay. Oh. So they found at least who that was. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. The information with everything they had led to a homicide investigation taking place where a seamstress discovered that the tent had been cut from the inside. This means that something must have happened that made the experienced hikers, who know about the dangers of exposure and hypothermia, still cut through their tent, leave their belongings, and travel barefoot into the forest. Yeah. They were like, with how many people died, how scattered they were because of the injuries that they had. Yeah. They thought foul play was in order. Yeah. Something had to have happened Something had to, to have force happened. them into that condition. Exactly. Yeah. And then a seamstress, they hired a seamstress to look at the tent to try to see, like, what blade cut it, what fabric, you know, all yeah. of that seamstress stuff. And she was like, girly, this was cut from the inside out, which means that they were trying to escape their tent. Damn. Yeah. This is cool. Yeah. As four bodies were missing, the search continued, hoping to find any clues. In May, a Mansi hunter and his dog found a makeshift snow den about 250 feet from the tree that the Yuris were found at. In the deep crevasse of snow, the remaining four bodies were crevasse. found. Crevasse. <laughs> In the deep crevasse. Do you crevasse. say crevice? Yeah, I say crevice. <laughs> In the deep crevasse of snow. <laughs> That's me watching way too many, like, Nat Geo documentaries. <laughs> In the deep crevasse of snow. <laughs> anyway, they found the other four bitches. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. They were dug out of 10 feet of snowfall and they were found all laying together. Uh, so a snow den is like a sinkhole almost. Like it was like buried yeah. down and so they had to dig them out. But a dog went down and oh, they were God. like, oh shit, they're down there. Yeah. And so the Mansi people contacted the Russian authorities and the Russian authorities came and exhumed the bodies. Jesus. Yeah. The autopsy showed that three out of the four had severe trauma. Nikolai's skull was so severely fractured that a piece of it was forced into his brain. Oh, God. 
Simeon and Ludmila suffered from crushed chests, shattered ribs, and Lamila also had a severe hemorrhage in her heart. So Ludmila was the one that had previously been shot by an arrow. Shit. Um, so she was a badass. Yeah. And something, like, crushed her heart. Her. Dang. It was said that the damage was equal to the result of an impact of an automobile moving at high speed. Well, this finding led to the thought of an avalanche. The examiner also reported that Ludmila's eyes, tongue, and upper lip were missing, along with Simeon's eyes as well. Mm. They were like, the amount of force that must have been caused to their body would be an automobile Which hitting them at high impact. would make sense for an avalanche, but then their eyes and shit were missing. missing when they and were an, under snow. And why would an avalanche... <laughs> remove their eyes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, mind blank. <laughs> exactly. Ooh. Upon further examination of the items, it was found that some of the hikers were wearing the clothes of the others. They were cut off from bodies and put on other people, presumably in efforts to stay warm. Several items from their bodies were also tested for radiation. The result came back higher than what was normal by a large amount. The radiological expert said that since the bodies were exposed to snow and water for so many months before they were found, the original levels of radiation must have been... Many times greater. Dang. So he's saying for how long these bodies were exposed, their bodies lost radiation levels. Oh. Which means when they found their bodies, they were already extremely high. Yeah. Before they were found... It must have been incredibly Incredibly high. high. Yeah. Which would make sense for third-degree burns. Yeah. And, like, other extremities, nose, eyes, mouth, yeah. to be facing the impacts of those, you know? Yeah. If you're breathing that stuff in, if you're seeing through some type of radiation. Yeah. Ooh. On May 28th, the investigation was abruptly closed by Detective Ivanov. His single role in the investigation was to determine if a crime had taken place. He closed the governmental investigation of the case by saying, It should be concluded that the cause of the hikers' demise was an overwhelming force which they were not able to overcome. It's literally the Soviet Union. That's the overwhelming force. That they were literally... <laughs> that they were not able to overcome. Oh my god. That's so oh, funny. Wow. But like, so everybody was really pissed off about this. Yeah. Everybody, all of the parents, friends, people from the institution, other colleagues in the hiking, you know, field... They were like, what the All fuck? All were contacting do you government, being like, this is bullshit, this deserves more attention. We need an to explanation look into this. properly. The yeah. fact that you're saying just a greater force, like, what happened? And all the government kept on saying was, it wasn't a homicide. We don't know. It was something more. Yeah. Like, that's all they said. Yeah. Which just, I mean, leaves everybody wondering what actually happened. Happened. Yeah. The Soviet Union proceeded to punish or fire most of the officials that were involved with the case, including the director of the UPI, the chairman of the UPI Sports Club, the local Communist Party secretary, the chair—I <laughs> know, <laughs> isn't That's that one funny? funny? Yeah. <laughs> the chairman of two unions and the union inspector. The files, photographs, journals, and most of the information surrounding the incident were now classified, and Dead Mountain was now a restricted government area, and was not able to be visited for many years. Why are they reacting so heavily to this if it's just, just an <laughs> avalanche? Yeah. You're kidding me. Why are you blocking everything off and they firing? fired everybody? They're really trying to push the blame onto someone here. Yeah. Wow. The items being retained by the government were mostly destroyed due to negligence. Like, the tent became moldy in storage and it had to be thrown out. So basically, the government, when they collected all the evidence and all the people's belongings, they kept it in storage but didn't take care of it. Yeah. That's fucked up. Yeah. So even the evidence to help prove is now... Gone. Gone. There's no evidence. 
The saddle area in the mountain that the hikers would have been going to was named the Dyatlov Pass after the incident. Finally, a letter from Yuri to Dyatlov was found that was written on the week of travel. It says, Here's wishing you camps pitched on mounts afar, routes to hike over ranges untamed, packs that, as ever, rest lightly on your backs, and weather that smiles upon your quest, and let your footprints trace winding paths across the map of Russia. And Beautiful. That's, that's so cute. The groundwork for Dyatlov These conspiracies. Conspiracies. Conspiracy time. Ooh. Time Ooh. for a conspiracy. Conspiracy time. Conspiracy time. Conspiracy time. Conspiracy time. <laughs> So, yeah, this is all that was kind of released. There's a lot of theories in a lot of different ways. Um, Katie's going to be covering the avalanche theory uh, pretty intensely, and I am going to be covering the other 18 fucking theories in a very short amount of time, so I'm going to blast through them and give very short explanations. Let's get into it. So the first one is hypothermia. The next one is nuclear testing in Soviet government. The next one's American spies. The Mansi people. A motherfucking Yeti. Cardboard monoxide. Cardboard monoxide. Cardboard cardboard monoxide (laughs) poisoning. (laughs) Consumption of Mansi magic mushrooms. Uh, Most of the Russians believe in one of the two theories, that either the skiers died because they stumbled onto a secret testing facility, or they were killed by mercenaries, which includes the Manzi people, but Russians lead more towards (laughs) the American spy theory. Okay. So the the Russians are either like, our government did it, the Americans did it, or the Manzi people did it. Yeah. Is what they think. The Manzis wouldn't have been so nice about trying to find them. Help. Yeah. Exactly. In 1990, the lead investigator, Ivanov, stated uh, after retiring that the government pressured him to hide evidence to only tell their version of the story. He claims that he had evidence to show that it was more than just the natural theories of it's an avalanche or they had hypothermia. Yeah. Ivanov claims that the trees around the area were charred as if they had been burned. He also states the last photo on one of the Yuri's camera had flares and streaks against it as it was extremely dark background, but it was taken at night. So whatever was in the picture was overexposed. So it was just very bright, yeah. overexposed, high contrasting pictures. Yeah. These details would have been in the full report, but the government uh, withheld them. And then he re-released them in 1990 in an article called The Enigma of Fireballs. That's such a beautiful title. Yeah, it it sounds so, The Enigma of Fireballs. Isn't it kind of badass? Yeah. It's so, so in cool. that, he's like, here's all of the information that I have to prove that it was some type of... Like nuclear radiation, unnatural aliens. Has anyone suggested aliens? I was thinking it earlier. It's been suggested, but I think that one just gets shot down so quickly because all of the other ones make more sense than aliens. You know. Well, we don't know how aliens manifest themselves, but fine. Maybe they're just—they really—they really really knew how to do this job. They covered it up well. (laughs) Uh, You're Yudin, so the only survivor um, due to his sciatica said on his deathbed in 2013 claims that over years he was threatened and approached and questioned by the government by the soviet government damn uh he believes that they were found they as in 
the group of hikers, were found yeah. close to a testing facility and were forced by the government to come out of their tents. So that he thinks yeah. that the government told them they need to get out of their tents. They cut through the tents because they're in a panic. It's dark. He claims that this is also why Simeon and Ludmila had features removed. Their eyes because they must have been the ones to find the nuclear testing facility. So they saw it, so they took and out their eyes. And then Ludmila's tongue because she was notably the most outspoken in the group. Wow. So he thinks that the government... Was really... Wow. They probably didn't even realize that they were on a testing facility, you know? Exactly. They just were sleeping, and then bright lights, and you hear just people, and you know that you're on maybe, like, this other people's territory. I don't know. So the other ones that are all options is hypothermia. The temperatures did drop. It was starting to become a snowstorm on the mountain. Hypothermia could set in. They were mostly in their clothes so basically what happens when you're a hiker and you're hiking in the mountains where there's snow to get warm you change your clothes to go to bed and so one of the theories is that they had hypothermia when they were going to change they were changing their clothes to go to bed which is why all their stuff was laid out nothing was like messed with yeah because they were going to change for bed yeah. And then as they were changing, their hypothermia sat in, they started to go a little bit crazy. The reason why two of them were found somewhere else is because they yeah. were the first ones to leave. One of them followed the other one. People came to look for them afterwards. Like Yeah, and they're all just like... Wandering, confused, yeah. Have hypothermic. Yeah, kind yeah, of. Uh, one that also kind of goes along with that is a carbon monoxide poisoning. So they mm-hmm. had little heat lamps that they oh. would have on. Yeah. And... If one of them were leaking, they could have been poisoned by carbon monoxide. Oh, and, monoxide. and then that would explain, like, a burn, too, right? The burn, like yeah. They... Well, that would also would explain why some of them, like, why you would just run out with half a shoe on, yeah. or why you would cut from the inside. Yeah. Like, you're trying to get out of why the space. Why would you... The one that I most believe is the testing facility, the nuclear testing facility, and the Soviet government interaction. Just because of how much the Soviet government <laughs> covered up, and also with the storm that was coming in, if they did a nuclear test nearby, all of that radiation cloud coverage uh-huh. would come raining over, inherently burning the flora and fauna that was there, yeah. also burning the people in their clothes. If radiation's getting really high as it's falling down, yeah. it could make you get third degree burns already in the tent and then you're cutting your way out because you're like what the fuck is happening and you're running yeah. until you know like it just makes way more sense and if they took a picture of the actual bomb going off like maybe it was just through the mountain you know yeah so i feel like a lot of the evidence points towards a nuclear interaction of some sort it seems yeah, yeah. or even if it didn't happen in that exact experience it still kind of proves that nuclear testing was happening nearby because of how high their nuclear radiation was. If they were really close to a testing facility, that seems so realistic, kind of, you know? Because maybe they were just doing an experiment nearby and then they got affected and they saw something that they weren't supposed to see and then... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, The other ones are American spies, which that's just because of the American-Russian tension at the time, I'm pretty sure. The Mansi people were obviously just an attack on indigenous people trying to monstrosize them. Yeah. I When they were helping the entire evidence, of course they wouldn't have been the ones to hurt these people. In an interview with one of the leaders of the Mansi people, they were supposedly, the theory is, if the Mansi people attacked, it's because the Diet Law incident happened on sacred land. And when the Mansi people were questioned about this, they said, no, that's desolate land. We don't 
we don't go in that area, nothing thrives in that area, we don't go there. Yeah. Which would also make sense if there was a nuclear testing facility nearby, the people would know that the plants that grow there, the animals that come from that area would all be radiation, but they would just know that, like, you get sick from eating that stuff. Yeah, it's desolate there. It's desolate, yeah. Yeah, We don't go there. The whole Mansi people, I think, is just an attack on indigenous people. Yeah. And then there's the motherfucking Yeti. These, some people claim it was a Yeti. Why would a Yeti... It doesn't, there's a picture apparently, but it doesn't really stand on anything. There's a picture of a Yeti? Uh, And the last one is consumption of Mansi magic mushrooms. The Mansi people were really into shrooms, and they would hang them in the forest to let them dry. And so one of the theories is that the group found these mushrooms hanging and thought that the people, the Mansi people, were just curing some food and they were really hungry, so they just, like, ate them. And they were actually shrooms. Yeah. And so they tweaked. But that still doesn't explain why the trees are charred. Why would you, as, like, a a person who's good at skiing, travels a lot, goes on these expeditions a lot, just see some mushrooms and be like, oh... I'm going to eat these mushrooms. Like, you'd have some idea, probably, that you shouldn't. And mushrooms are kind of poisonous. Exactly. So you would not go off on a limb for mushrooms. Maybe if there's, like, a berry. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so that's all of my conspiracies. Cool. And we're back. Uh, Katie got some food. Yeah, I did. I feel like we're always eating in this podcast. Yeah, literally. Too. We're like, and we order Uber food, eats, so... Sponsor us. Uber Eats please. sponsor us, please. And then give us free food forever. Or at least, like, free delivery forever. Please, I'm begging. Like, I could use that. Um. Okay, so... Thank you to National Geographic, News Direct, and uh, Wikipedia, which I spelled wrong. So, <laughs> my conspiracy theory is the one that science backs up, which is... Science says it was an avalanche. Boom. Boo. 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 Science. Wah, wah, wah. A motherfucking yeti. Yeah, it was a yeti. It was a yeti for sure. Um, so Russia opened a new investigation into the incident in 2019, and its conclusions were presented in July 2020 that an avalanche led to the deaths. So survivors of the avalanche had been forced to suddenly leave their camp in low visibility conditions with inadequate clothing, and then they had died from hypothermia. Uh, Audrey Kirov... Kirovkov. Kirikov. Kirikov. Deputy head of the regional prosecutor's office said it was a heroic struggle. There was no panic, but they had no chance to save themselves under the circumstances. So a study led by scientists from EPFL and ETH in Zurich published in 2021 an article that suggested a type of avalanche, uh, <laughs> a type of avalanche known as a slab avalanche could explain some of the injuries. So, we got this American skeptic author. His name is Benjamin Radford. And he suggested an avalanche as more plausible that the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to the tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent and it was better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it under tons of snow. So they were poorly clothed. Hold on, I hate the word slit. <laughs> slit. The way you said slit. there was a slit. There was a the... slit in the tent. <laughs> oh god. And they were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help snow would help slow oncoming snow. In the darkness of the night they got separated into two or three groups. One made a fire 
hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing, since the danger had passed, but it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could relocate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four whose bodies were most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under four meters, or 13 feet, of snow. Uh, and that was more than enough to account uh, for the compelling natural force that the medical examiner had described. Dubania's tongue was likely removed by scavengers or ordinary predators, so animals or something could have gotten the eyes and the nose and all of those little. But body like parts. buried under thirteen feet of snow, they could. Well, your face could, huh? I don't know. I just <laughs> I question it. I question yeah. it. It it is also wouldn't wouldn't they have found more footprints going away from because. If you could see... Or two sets of footprints, one leading to the place and one... Leading away. Yeah. But, so they... They would have clearly been led somewhere if... Because they could see the toes and the footprints. So when they found the people around the fire, the two Yuris around the fire... Yuri and Yuri. Yuri and Yuri around the fire. They didn't find Yatlov or the other girl. And if they were actually, like, going back to retrieve something those footprints would be as clear. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I, I'm, uh, Are you a snowologist? <laughs> I'm not a snowologist. <laughs> I ain't, in all honesty, I do think it was nuclear testing, but an avalanche also makes sense. And, and what if they both. just did, yeah, an avalanche after the nuclear testing. Yeah. Yeah. So, Evidence contradicting the avalanche theory includes the location of the incident didn't have any obvious signs of an avalanche being taken. Holy the- fucking shit. What if uh, avalanche happened because of the nuclear testing? They saw the bright lights, the like seismic force from the nuclear bomb hitting the ground, then made a slab avalanche happen on top of them. Yeah. Which is why they were covered in snow, but they were still burned because the radiation would be falling as well. Yeah, and that would explain their weird behaviors and things. This is definitely a por qué no los dos situation. Por qué, por qué no los dos. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Uh, the bodies were found within a month of the event and were covered with a very shallow layer of snow, and had there been an avalanche of sufficient enough strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process that would have also damaged the tree line. Over 100 expeditions to the region had been held since the incident, and none of them have ever reported conditions that might lead to an avalanche. So after that incident, nothing ever like this happened again. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics uh, revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for an avalanche to have occurred. The dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes and corners were observed was observed in april and may when the snowfall of winter was melting during february when the incident occurred there were no such conditions an analysis of the terrain and the slope showed that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way into the area its path would have gone past the tent also datlov Dyatlov was an experienced skier um and the much older zolotarov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. So neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere near the path of a potential avalanche. They just knew too much. 
Footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine people, running in panic from either a real or imagined danger. All the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at a normal pace. So. Which kind of goes with, like, the government portion of it. Like, what if nuclear bomb went off, avalanche happened, they heard commotion, and then the government came and was like, Get out of your tent. Get out of your tent. Now, now walk this way in a line. Yeah. Oh, true. And if someone's yelling at you, you would maybe still be panicked, but you'd obey them. Or they found them first, got them out, then caused the avalanche. Yeah. To cover up all of the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or since the snow wasn't even, there wasn't that much snow covering them. Yeah. We don't even know for sure if there was an avalanche. They could have just thrown snow over them and knocked a few things around, you know? True. Especially since the tree line wasn't damaged. Huh. But a review of the original 1959 investigation happened in 2015 to 2019 by experienced investigators from the Investigation Committee of the Russian Federation, or ICRF, um, on the request of the families. They confirmed the avalanche with several important details added. So... The ICRF investigators, one of them was an experienced alpinist and confirmed that the weather on that night of the tragedy was harsh. Um, It had a lot of harsh winds that were going up to 67 miles per hour between 45 to 67 and a snowstorm and the temperatures were reaching negative 40 Celsius slash Fahrenheit. I don't know. I googled like how to translate Celsius to Fahrenheit and it said for negative 40 Celsius is negative 40 Fahrenheit. I don't understand Celsius, so it was just really fucking cold. (laughs) These factors weren't considered by the 1959 investigators who arrived at the scene of the incident. Three three weeks later, when the weather had much improved and any remains of the snow slide had settled and been covered with fresh snowfall. So on February 1st, we already went through this, um, we, you know, they arrived to the mountain, uh, they erect a large nine-person tent on an open slope without any natural barriers. On the day and a few preceding days, a heavy snowfall persisted with strong winds and frost. The group traversed the slope, digging a tent site, blah, blah, blah. During the night, the snowfall above the tent started to slide down slowly under the weight of the new snow, gradually pushing on the tent fabric starting from the entrance. The group wakes up, they start evacuating in a panic, with only some able to put on warm clothes. With the entrance blocked, the group escapes through a hole in the tent fabric and descends the slope to a place perceived as safe, so in the forest border where the avalanche doesn't seem to be hitting. Because some of the members have only incomplete clothing, the group splits. So two of the group, only in their underwear and pajamas, were found at the Siberian pine tree near a fire pit. Their bodies were found first. Yuri, and confirmed to die from hypothermia. Three hikers, including Dyatlov, attempted to climb back to the tent, possibly to get sleeping bags, clothes. They had better clothes on than the people at the fire pit, so of course they'd be the ones to go because like you're going to leave the naked ones around the fire. They were found uh, in various distances from the campfire, so it, in poses that suggest that they had fallen from exhaustion while trying to climb in the deep snow in extremely cold weather. The remaining four, equipped with the warmest clothing and footwear, were trying to find or build a better camping place in the forest further down the slope. So they were found 60 meters from the fireplace under several meters of snow with severe traumas indicating that they had fallen into a snow hole formed above a stream. These bodies were found only after two months. 
So according to ICRF investigators, the factors contributing to the tragedy were extremely bad weather, lack of experience from the, uh, from the group leader in such conditions, which led to the selection of a very dangerous camping site. And after the snow slide, another mistake the group made was to split up rather than building a temporary camp in the forest or trying to survive through the night. Negligence of the 1959 investigators contributed to the report creating more questions than answers and inspiring numerous conspiracy theories. Motherfucking Yeti. Mother, <laughs> like the Yeti. Uh, but also, Russia kind of tried to close us off. So Exactly. It was, yeah, they like, investigated it Like, this still feels like a little... So maybe they just really didn't care, but then why would they erect a fence and not allow anyone? You know, Because exactly. it's one thing to be like, it was an avalanche, we're just going to let this shit go. But why would you block everything Why would you, off? Fire, why would you everyone? fire everyone? Why would you, yeah. Why would so, the lead investigator come out and say... That he was asked to hide evidence, yeah. you know? Unless he wanted attention, which I'm not going to put that past anyone. Yeah. I like attention. Yeah. Would I lie for it? Depends. I think it would be more likely for Yuri Yudin to lie about it, though, on his, like, deathbed, where the other guy, it was right after he retired that he was like, I can now say this. Yeah, because Yuri was like, I could fuck some shit up. Before I die. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. So in 2021, 2021, <laughs> in 2020, <laughs> I'm going to try again. In 2021. A team of physicists and engineers led by Alexander Puzrin and Johan Guam published in uh, Communications, Earth, and Environment a new model that demonstrated how even a relatively small slide of snow slab on the, that slope, the Kolotzlachov Death Mountain Slope, could cause tent damage and injuries consistent with those suffered by the Dyatlov team. Um, most blunt force trauma, like injuries and some of the soft tissue damaged, were atypical of those caused by avalanches, uh, whose vis victims usually asphyxiate. And if an avalanche occurred, why was there a gap of at least nine hours, according to forensic data, between the team members cutting the slope for their encampment and the eventual avalanche? That curious delay was of particular interest to Mr. Alexander Puzrin, and he was a geotechnical engineer at ETH Zurich, one of Switzerland's Federal Institutes of Technology. He'd published a paper explaining how, strange as it may seem, an earthquake can trigger an avalanche with a gap ranging from mere minutes to several hours. And apparently, uh, when he told his wife, who was Russian, that he was working on the Dyatlov mystery, he said, for the first time, she looked at me with real respect. And I said, for the first time? You, you're married. That's you are married. That's your wife. That's your She's never wife. looked at you with respect. What? Yeah. So oh, God. The tea is, uh, is that originally they said the slope was too shallow for an avalanche, but that's not true. It was close to 30 degrees, which is the minimum requirement for many avalanches. And while weather reports show no record of snowfall that night, the Dyatlov's group diary entries wrote that there were very strong winds, so that was likely to cause a catabolic winds, which would be heavy clumps of frigid air that brought large amounts of snow from higher up towards the campsite, increasing the load on an already precarious slope and explaining the nine hour delay between the snow cut and the avalanche. So it wasn't caused by a huge snowstorm, it was caused by really strong, powerful winds. Mm. And so Frozen comes in here. Here's a little fun fact. <laughs> Joan Guam, head of the Snow Avalanche Simulation Laboratory at EPFL, reached out to Frozen's animators after they saw how they depicted Frozen in the snow movement so well in that little animated movie. So they met up in California and they modified the animation code for his 
avalanche simulation model. Then they took research from General Motors experiments in the 1970s and combined it with this code. So the GM research consisted of taking 100 cadavers and breaking their ribs. <laughs> so they, <laughs> yeah, what? 100 dead bodies and hitting them. Uh, they just hit them with different weights at different velocities to see what would happen in a car crash, which was used to calibrate the safety of seat belts. Some of the cadavers uh, used in the test were braced with rigid supports and others weren't, which helped out Puzrin and Guam. In the past, the team members had placed their bedding on their skis, which meant that the avalanche, when it hit them as they slept, struck a rigid target similar to the cadavers braced with rigid supports. So the impact would have been enough to break ribs and skulls. These injuries would have been severe, but not necessarily immediately fatal. So that would explain the caved-in skull, the mm. uh, the chest, the all of this stuff, because they were sleeping on these skis. Yeah. Um, this would have been an incredibly rare event, but rare events do happen. And this professional hiker and mountain guide said, people love to invent implausible scenarios about death in the wild wilderness because we will never know 100% what happened. Period. Yeah. So that was Freddie Wilkinson. So the finale, a mountain pass in the area has been named Deltoff Pass in memory of the group. In many language, the, uh, languages, <laughs> the incident is now referred to as the Dyatlov Pass incident. However, the incident occurred about 1700, is that how you say that? Yeah. 1700 meters away on the eastern slope of Kolodsyaklov Death Mountain. A prominent rock outcrop in this area is now a memorial to the group, and it is located about 500 meters east of the actual site. And also, they have a group tomb. And my thought on this is, okay, cool, nice. Maybe if they had built, like, a group memorial. But did they want to be buried together? So, yeah, they that's just, weird. Like, maybe they were friends. Yeah, fine. But they just they were met, besties. right? They were besties, but they just met. Would they you just met. Be, would you want to be buried with me? Yeah, but I know you. Phil and East, do you want to be buried with me? In a tomb? Oh, she hesitated. <laughs> yeah, well, because Phil and East might want to be buried next to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Me? No. I did. No, I understand that. My mom, that was my mom's request, was to be buried as close as possible to her best friend. So her best friend is like five rows down. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Buried. Yeah. Bury me with my besties. Bury me. <laughs> Bury me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but were they besties, though? Yeah, I mean, like, they all, like, knew each other. They were friends. They had gone on hikes together before. They oh, trauma yeah. bonded. That one bitch got shot say, before. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then they still hiked with her. And they, yeah, they traveled a lot beforehand. I imagine, you know, when you're going on a vacation with your friends and you just get excited and you're talking all the time, you bond really yeah. quickly. But bonding enough to get buried together, like, fuck, mm. you know? <laughs> Besties forever. Yeah. But, yeah, so science does kind of say that it was an avalanche. Yeah, but I don't know. Uh, all the scientists sound like commies. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, when you put it that way, Chief, I believe America. <laughs> America. Anyway, no, I do think it was actually still the government had more to I do with d- it. I do think the government had something to do with it, just because I didn't even know if the that avalanche they was that triggered strongly. by them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What do you think, Thelonious? I I think a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. Like probably some like <laughs> Bigfoot shit. <laughs> yeah, it was the motherfucking. It was yeti. the motherfucking <laughs> yeti. It was a yeti made by the Soviet Union. Yeah. Nuclear testing. They saw the yeti, 
they said get took him. a picture of the yeti while get the yeti him. was like running, running at him. yeah and yeah. like glowing radiation eyes and the yeti's power is radiation so it singed them and took their oh, eyes God. out and their tongue and then after it was done it caused an avalanche yeah, yeah. Um, by farting by fu- ah <laughs> uh, damn it, i clicked the wrong one Oh, that was close. There we go. <laughs> Whoa! Uh, yeah. So, first of all, Felonice, which which one do you believe the most? Like... Which one do you believe the most? Um... <laughs> Felonice? <sighs> yes, Felonice. <laughs> TikTok. <laughs> I'm being a Libra. <laughs> Not Ready? I'm being a Libra. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> Because I, like, I feel like I'm a rational person. Yeah. So, like, the avalanche. Yeah. Sorry for that sound, guys. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of terror. <laughs> but I could definitely see some... Because the government's sketchy. I just... Yeah. Any government exactly. is sketchy. Especially, like, the Russian government at that time. During the Soviet... Yeah. Or yeah. before the Soviet Union, like... Yeah. During the Soviet Union? Which one is it? It's not the Soviet... It's Russia now. During the Soviet Union. <laughs> yeah. Like, they could do some fucked up shit. Yeah. And then the fact that they just shut down that area, and they put a fence around it, and made all of the things confidential, and didn't open up another investigation until 2015, even though there was clearly demand for one. Yeah. Weird. Weird. Big weird. Yeah. Okay, three-sentence summary. Uh, Philonese, do you want to do our three-sentence summary? Uh, basically, you choose three sentences to give the overarching story. You can you have to say commas as you go. Bunch of bros climbed a mountain, comba, comba. Um. <laughs> Strong start. <laughs> uh, got a little too cold. Comma, and the rest was history. Yeah. That's one sentence. I hope you know that. Yeah. You commented the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. One That's sentence it. summary. One sentence summary. Yeah. <laughs> was it the government? Question mark. Question mark. An avalanche? Oh, yeah, I guess. Question mark. They don't have to be. They don't have to be periods. Yeah. Yeah, you have two more sentences if you want to propose oh, a. Um, a thought. I like that. Was it the government? Was it the average? Mm. And solidified. And, yeah, and we'll send. write it in the books. Deal or no deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, thank you guys for listening. For listening to our first conspiracy episode. Uh, there was a lot of information that we threw at you. Yeah, but we hope that you enjoy it. And we hope that you enjoy it. We hope that you're a little foghorned right now. Yeah. Uh, we're a little foghorned right now. We are a little foghorned. I'm coming down from the horn. Horn. Nah. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, follow us at social media at... The Killer Kush Podcast. We're just Killer, Killer Kush, Kush Podcast. Killer Podcast is what I meant. Is Killer Kush <laughs> Podcast. We are on the tweet, on we the Instagram, on the Insta. and on the face of book. Yes, uh, also click our links down below to find where to listen to us, and also... Uh, please submit noises. I'm begging. Thank We're you, begging. Allison, for this week. The life of our children depend on it. But ten, but <laughs> the depend lives. on your noises. Please, please, Send I need to feed my wife and kids. You. Okay. I'm begging. Uh, bye. Bye.
Bye. <laughs> <laughs>